Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is the great Eric Cinnamond of Palm Valley Capital. We'll be talking the Fed. We'll be talking flows. We'll be talking small value right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. How are you, Eric? Good to see you again. Hey, great to see you, Toby. Thanks for having me back. My absolute pleasure. So you, you got one of the best responses uh, of any podcast that I've put up, folks like the uh the, the message and uh, I know that you well received every time you go on Real Vision as well just for folks who, who haven't know, heard of you before audience, Tommy. <laughs> for, for folks who haven't heard of you before what, uh, what do you do? Well we run an absolute return strategy it's small caps and really it's very simple we just you know when we're getting paid to take the risk we will and when we're, when we're not we don't we'll hold cash so we're very different than most small cap funds that are fully invested and um, it's worked really well over three cycles. So, so, uh, but it's very painful during certain periods and very re rewarding um, during others. And, um, but it's very different. It's very so, different. So we'll, there's... We'll, we'll be fully invested to 95% cash, depending on the, the valuations of our opportunities. So. I have spoken to a few other guys who we know mutually, and I know that um, we had an opportunity last year. So in March, I don't think at any stage it really got cheap. Like I think that was, I think everybody, a lot of folks seem to think that was like a 2009 style bottom. But I sort of thought it was that was just one of the one of the more frequent drawdowns that we've had over the the last sort of decade since then. And I know that you got, and it was very brief, but you got some way invested. And mm -hmm. uh, have you taken some of those positions off? So can you just, what, what happened through that period? Well, you know, we were 95% cash or so going into 2020. Uh, you know, the fund launched in April 2019. And, you know, we, we were getting 2% on T-bills. And, of course, the Fed eventually took that away from us as well as they pivoted and kind of did the prevent, you know, don't let asset inflation revert. And uh, so now we're 90, 95% cash going into March. And of course, you know, we had COVID, you know, they, they say they don't ring a bell, you know, before stocks crash, but I, I thought the bell was ringing for a couple months there, you know, giving you a little warning that that, that demand, economic demand may decline. Um, but then March hit and it, it's just small caps got cut in half. The small cap value benchmarks were, were down practically in half and it happened very quickly and liquidity, completely evaporated the bids disappeared and that's when we typically you know do well and you know it's not the catalyst we wanted for sure um but it was a catalyst nonetheless and many of the high quality small cap stocks we had on our possible buy list you know, we fall about 300 names went from extremely overvalued to some got very interesting and uh we were able to get half of the half of the fund invested i think we would have gotten completely invested uh, if it were not for the the federal reserve uh, purchasing corporate bonds, yeah, I think that was that was the day that everything changed. You know, when they're they're willing to buy private assets and and um, our private debt, 
And um, and eat yeah, this. So we, we we were on the way. We I think if we had one more week of the turmoil, we would have been fully invested. So so we're a little bitter that didn't happen, uh, but also very grateful for the volatility we had to at least get half invested. You know, we ended up the year 19%, and average committed capital for the year was. 27%. So, you know, it was, you think about the, the risk that we took, you know, you know, much less than, than the average small cap fund, and we were able to beat both our benchmarks. But, but again, we're an absolute return strategy, so that's not our goal, to beat the benchmarks. Uh, but, we, you know, heck, whatever. <laughs> we, did, we did in a very unusual way. It uh, just shows kind of how the strategy can work. What are you looking for, and what sort of sizing are you trying to get for what's a full size position for you? Uh, usually four to five percent. So, so we've had that on a couple names uh, more recent. And uh, you know, I know when I was managing money in two thousand nine, you know, the last time valuations were very attractive. Uh, the top ten holdings were about 40 percent or so, maybe a little more. So that was sort of a, a concentrated portfolio. But when you're in a period where small cap valuations are extremely expensive, as they are today, you you don't have those fifty cent dollars for the most part. Uh, so, so you know, the position sizes will be a little lower. The position sizes are are built uh, on discount and risk, you know, risk. So if we have a really high risk business, even if it's a big discount, it might not be a four or five percent weight. You know, energy is a very good example recently. Uh, but if we have a, a, a low risk business with a great balance sheet and a big discount, uh, Amdox, DOX is a good example. Uh, you know, that will be more of a, a four to five percent position. When you're when you so when you're defining risk, you're talking about the business uh, strategy risk rather than you're not look, you're not talking about balance. You're saying these got good balance sheets, but there's just something. It's a commodity, and so you don't really know where commodity is going to go. You're just looking at is it kind of undervalued on a on an earnings power basis, average earnings power basis. Yeah, well, risk for us, you know, as you point out, is a part partially valuation, but also for each business, we're looking at um, operating risk and financial risk. So we'll have operating risk, volatility of cash flows, uncertainty of cash flows, and that would be like an energy company, a cyclical industrial. Um, and then we'll look at financial risk, and that'll be maybe a, a steady company with some debt. You know, maybe think about like a Constellation Brands, a wine company that has that has some debt. Uh, so we're willing to take operating risk or financial risk. We just never combine the two yeah. because that's when you can have a goose egg. And for an absolute return strategy, which we're really just trying to generate an attractive absolute return over a full cycle, you just can't have companies go bankrupt. <laughs> it's just not, not a good look. <laughs> yeah, that, so, uh, that's best so that's how we view risk. You know, valuation, you point out, is a very good point, but also within the businesses, financial risk and operating risk. Um, I am a little more comfortable with operating risk. You know, you'll find I'll maybe uh, recommend some cyclicals. Energy, again, is a good example. Where Jamie, the co-manager... Uh, he's a little more comfortable with with financial risk, um, but but we both it's a nice check and balance for both of us. You know, we're, we're bring something on maybe with some debt and say, like, whoa, 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 and then I'll bring on something with some operating risk. Wait, 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 wait. You know, so so uh, but, but we both agree. You know, we'll never combine the two. So I, I, I that's I, that's helped so much uh, in the past. We're in this this strategy. So I, I read your. I read your latest uh, blog post, your latest piece that came out on 29 December, and you were talking about a discussion that you had with a friend, colleague of yours. And this is something that I have encountered many, many times. So I kind of want to talk to you about this a little bit. Um, the drift in style. And yeah. so he's, he's gone from being a, a value guy, 
or maybe a, at the deep end of value to being a value guy at the growthier end of value or, or even a, a full bone growth guy. And, he's, yeah. and it seemed like that made his life so much better. So what, what are we oh, doing? So much better. <laughs> if you want to be wealthy and if you want to sleep well at night, you know, you don't want to be a value manager. And that sounds you know, great. So, That's what I want. Yeah, I, my, my favorite part about that blog post or my conversation with my friend, and, and he's the one that brought it up, was he, he said, he, you know, when you go to bed at night before your, your value stock reports earnings, and you know that feeling you have, you know, it's just going to be bad. <laughs> you know, you, you can't sleep. You think about how bad it's going to be, how much money you're going to lose the next day. Uh, but he's like, growth stocks. It was like it's totally a revelation to him. Um, you know, you, you make money the next day and you sleep well. And it's like, you know, you're going to make money. You know, the stock's going to go up. Uh, so I thought that was funny. But it, it's also true. You know, so so yeah, he he's converted and very comfortable with it. <laughs> and, uh, doesn't rub it in my face, you know, and, and I completely understand where he's coming from. I mean, He's got a he's got a, a he's got you know, a family uh, a mortgage uh, and to run money how we run it you you might not get paid you know I mean Jamie and I haven't collected a salary in two years uh, there's there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into r running money this way um, but to keep up is pretty easy I mean to do it the decision is easy I guess it should I should say that it, it, it wasn't easy for him. But once he did it, it was a lot easier. It's made <laughs> you know, it better. But once you once you convert, you're like, whoa! It's almost like, I, why was I why was I a value investor to begin with? I mean, what an idiot! Well, you know? Isn't that the question then? Why not convert? Why not go and sure. become a growth guy? I, you know, that's a great question. <laughs> well, Maybe I should ask you that question. Well, I, I, I've thought about it a little bit. Here's, here's what I think, because, you know, I've, I haven't been doing it for as long as you have, but I have been through a few cycles now. And I have seen, I've also seen the reverse where for a very long period of time, great companies put up great numbers and just drifted sideways and had a whole lot of volatility for about a decade. Valuation at some point, I mean, the way, the way I think about the way I think about it is that you do really get, I, I think about it like I'm owning the business. I'm going to get the return yeah. that the business generates. I'm going to get the yield and the whatever's reinvested in that business over a period of time. That's right. I'm not trying to buy it on what I think the market is going to do to that stock price. I'm trying to buy it on what That's the return exactly. that I can see I can get from the underlying business. And when I look yeah. at some of these expensive businesses, I think, a lot has to go right for a long period of time for this thing to pay you back. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. You know, we have some names now in the portfolio we, we really like. I mean, our cash has gone up quite a bit, but what we have in the portfolio now we really like. We have we have a company called Crawford & Company. It's an insurance adjuster. Uh, Great they've business. improved their balance sheet considerably. It's closely held, so no one cares about it. Uh, $500 million enterprise value, about three three fifty market cap. Um, Generates 50 million a year in free cash flow. You know, so we're getting 10% free cash flow yield. They've cut their debt in half over the past, you know, since 2017. They've reduced their pension obligations uh, in half over the past five years, and they've gotten absolutely no credit for the improved balance sheet, improved operating operating results. So, so for them, you know, they'll do a lot better in, in periods where there's a lot more claims. You know, where there's catastrophe, say a hurricane. Um, medical claims, they outsource a lot of that. Uh, but it's it's done well, you know, <laughs> the fundamentals have improved. The balance sheet is so much better. And my, one of my favorite investments are 
companies that improve their balance sheets. And in theory, you should get dollar for dollar increase on your equity as you pay down your debt. And even more than that, because now your discount rate should be lower because you have lower risk in the business. Uh, So we're having these names, uh, especially the closely held ones I've noticed, uh, where they are improving, no one cares, they're deep value stocks. Um, But again, there's, and and I I point to the passive funds, I just think especially these closely held names, I don't think a lot of their float is in these passive funds. And it's all about flows right now, right? So it has nothing to do with fundamentals in, in this business paying off half of its debt. But in the old days, if you've reduced your debt that much, you, you would get rewarded, you know, as an equity holder. Are they buying uh, back stock? Are they taking advantage of it? Uh, they, they are. They're paying, and the dividend's nice too. It's a little over two percent dividend, um, but it's it's a good example of sticking to value, even though it's not working. Um, because as you're pointing out, you you get the dividend, and the business is growing, uh, but for us, more important, the balance sheet's improving. Right. And you're so owning more and more see, of it. We see real value for shareholders. It's just not in the stock price, but the value of the business as you deleverage clearly growing. It's just not a sexy, growthy business, right? And that seems to be the thing right. that the market wants at the moment is incredibly high growth rates, even on a top line, even if none of it ever falls to the bottom line or right. will ever fall to the bottom line or will ever show up in free cash flow. They just want. They just want the growth. And I, I guess the market right, goes right. through but these if you're, paroxysms. If you're 10 times free cash flow and you're at, you know, name your multiple now, right? I mean, it's just kind of outrageous. 50, 50 times. Um, if I'm at 10 times free cash flow and I can compound that 10%, they reinvest it in the business or, or pay down debt. It's so hard for a growth business at 50, 100 times earnings to catch up, you know, because we're so far ahead with the amount of. Uh, free cash flow yield we're, we're receiving. If you're receiving 1% or 2% free cash flow yield over here, think about how long it takes that coupon to catch up to the 10%. And the 10% is still growing, right? So, uh, I mean, so if- I, I've done all of this in 99. This is like a total flashback where the same things are going on. Uh, but there's some differences, and we can talk about that too. Well, well, let's let's talk about that just just before. I, I sometimes I think that you know that I in in the universe that I spend most of my time looking at, there's there's equivalent sort of stocks like AutoZone or O'Reilly, where you know I like the fact that they stay cheap oh, yeah. for longer because they're just buying back stock hand over fist all the time, and so you're getting your return, even if it's not necessarily manifesting in the stock price. The return is the intrinsic value is compounding and going up pretty yes. materially. Yes, but it compounds even better when it's a low multiple. When it's cheaper, you know, yeah. For you, for you. Yeah, that's uh, right. So, so I find that interesting. Just your starting point as a value investor is so much more attractive. If I can grow at 5% a year, compound that 10% free cash flow yield, it's so hard for a 1% coupon, 2% coupon to catch up to our yield. It has to grow it's very, very rapidly for a very long period yeah, and, of time. And then with that 10% that coupon, you could do so many more things than the one to two percent coupon can do, uh, but of course the catch to that if you have unlimited capital, which a lot of these one to two percent coupons do, it doesn't matter. That <laughs> kind of throws you know, but but over time they they will not have that unlimited capital at that at that uh, that, that cost of capital indefinitely. At some point that reverts. What are the parallels and the differences between the late nineteen nineties and now? Well, I think the similarities are that value is very cheap relative to growth, very cheap. The biggest difference is the components of value. Now in 99, you know, I had 
you know, you look at the, the Russell 2000 value, there were some really high quality small cap value stocks in there. You know, there was remember Church of Dwight, the market you know, market leader, uh, Arm and Hammer, um, JJ Snack Foods, JJSF, uh, uh, Lancaster Colony. They do uh, dressings and bread. Uh, Gorman Rupp, one of my favorite pump companies, sewage pumps, the blue, <laughs> blue pumps you see at construction sites. Uh, Oil Dry, the market leader in cat litter. Uh, you know, uh, God, there's so many Chemin. Uh, Scott's Miracle Grow, you know, I could go so on and sexy, on. So WD40, sexy. everyone uses, right? Like 50, 60 times earnings well, for, for WD40. Yeah. At least Church and Dwight, they, they, you know, they use Arm and Hammer for almost everything. I don't know if you can like put WD40 in toothpaste. You know? <laughs> so, so I think there is a limit there, uh, but it's at 60 times earnings. So all these traditionally small cap value stocks uh, back in the 90s and, and early 2000s, have have had multiple expansions that have been unbelievable. You know, you've gone from 10 to 15 times. Uh, Boston Beer is another one. Uh, you've gone from 10. I, I bought Boston Beer $9 in 2001, I believe, maybe 2000. It's now at $900. <laughs> I thought it got interesting a couple of years ago. I think it got cheap a couple of years ago, but then I, ch- I, I didn't buy it at the time, and I went back and looked oh. at the chart, and I was, I was stunned at how much it had yeah. run up. So that was the that's probably the should have could have would have of my career. Uh, I, I did well on it, but you know if I held it, I, yeah, you wouldn't I, be doing this. <laughs> do this podcast with you. <laughs> so, so you have the, the composition of value completely changed, and now those kind of companies are huge premiums to book, huge premium, you know, huge PEs, thirty to sixty times uh, price to sales, you know three to six times, I mean, just very expensive. And that is, you know, partially because of the multiple expansion we had, which of course, any of these perpetual bond type companies, which these are very high quality, um, you've had low rates, you know, 10, 11 years of, of this rate environment has caused people to just, you could throw, you could slap any multiple on these and it's still better than zero, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so then what's left in value? Well, extremely cyclical companies, generating trough results, uh, energy, financials. Financials is a huge component now. Yeah. So I think the quality of value has gotten worse. Uh, even though value is still cheap relative to growth, in 1999, it was high quality value, cheap to growth. So it was just so much more comfortable for me to buy the market leader cat litter than a bank in Texas you right. know, trading it you know, 1.1 times book that may or may not have a pretty good commercial real estate loan yeah. portfolio. So, so the financials now are very interesting. You know, I think some are cheap and, and they've moved recently. Um, but I think it's it's harder to get a high degree of confidence in valuation than the stocks in 1999 were. So that's the big difference. I think that that's that's borne out statistically too. There's a AQR research paper that shows one of the things that Cliff has, I think it's a Cliff Asness paper on his blog or something like that, but he looks at the return on assets of that value decile and it was mm-hmm. they were they were better companies than the expensive stocks in that early 2000s or late 1990s period even though they were trading much more cheaply. And this time around you do have to take uh, they're not as good companies. They're still way too cheap for the quality that you're getting, but they're not as good as the expensive companies. You can make a you can make an argument that even if the that you're overpaying for the more expensive companies, that 
the market still has the sort kind of right. Yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. Right. No, that does make sense. So you've actually looked into this. See, I just make stuff up as I go. Well, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> look at it. I just, just see it from our buy list, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. And these, I'm like, these can't be value stocks anymore. Um, so that's interesting to know, to know that. Um, so what's causing yeah, all this? You know, these, these things go in cycles. You know, I, I'm still a believer. These these high quality names are just so expensive. You know, if if you're if you're growing two to three percent, what most of these do is grow at nominal GDP rates. You know, it's not exceptional growth. The organic growth is not there uh, to support these valuations. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll just wait it out. And, and you saw it in March. I mean, some of these names like Uniforce, you know, one of the market leaders in uniforms, another slow grower, but consistent. Um, it, got, it got destroyed, you know, and it, it, we were able to buy Sykes is another one. Um, then the market leader, public company market leader in um, call centers. You know, that was another stock that got down to $24 as 2. Uh, 2. 2.8 in free cash flow a year, you know, $2 in cash, no debt, uh, just exceptional value. And this again goes back to March. So what you had in March was the initial sell-off, it, it's sort of the, the high quality value stocks or, or historically value stocks, they held up pretty well. You know, it wasn't until kind of mid, late March, uh, where the bid disappeared. And yeah. that's that's for us is like, whoa, you know, you had stocks down 5, 10, 15%, even 20% in a day where you could tell there was the bid was disappearing, liquidity was drying up, and there was no one there on the bid. You know, a few hundred shares would knock these stocks down. So that's when yeah. I said, finally, finally, passive is in trouble because there were outflows and you could tell the trading was so sloppy that they were selling into a market with no bid. And that's yeah. that's when we got invested. And that's when the higher quality names got cheap. You know, we bought Weiss Markets, WMK. It had, uh, at the time, $5 a share in cash. Now it has $8 a share in cash. Uh, got down to $35, $3 a share in normalized free cash flow. This year they'll make five because of the pandemic. And uh, $35, and they own half their stores. We bought it below tangible book value. Uh, 4% dividend at the time. And it the, the didn't matter. People were selling. It just, there was no bid. And that's what, that's what we do so well. Um, so, 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 so March was interesting with, with, the, with the high quality, you know, talk about how expensive high quality is. They did get hit in March. And that, I think, was a reflection of passive finally getting outflows. And so March was a test run. Right. That wasn't it. You know, if anything, it's 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 caused people to believe you, you should buy every dip. You know, it, it, it's encouraged them. They didn't really learn that lesson. But what we believe is that was a great test run. Uh, you know, check everything you've done. Check. Look under the hood of your portfolios. How did these stocks perform? Uh, because that for a couple of weeks was what the end of the cycle, we believe, is what it's going to look like. When the bids disappear and you, you can't get it out without moving the stock down significantly. And that's right now, I think the liquidity in these illiquid names and small caps, we've been doing this for so long, it just feels like it's always going to be there, but it's not. And same with junk bond funds or corporate, corporate debt funds. Uh, it'll be very interesting when the cycle ends to watch the passive investors try to all get out at once. And again, we've talked about this before, but that is the, going to be the great opportunity 
for patient discipline investors is when the passive funds have to sell because they don't have cash. When they get outflows, they have to sell. And we saw that in March. And um, it was it was glorious for value, you know, discipline value investors that had that had the capital to buy from them. So the two it sounds to me that the two causes in your mind of what's happening in the markets. Uh, first of all, it's the Fed just pinning rates way too low for way too long and everything else that they're doing. And secondarily, it's this trend towards passive where the flows drive the returns. I've got to ask, does it? Wh- why do you really care whether, whether the bigger companies keep on getting those flows and growing when like, the, the absence of flows to the smaller companies creates these opportunities? It, it does, but I, I would say uh, you know, there's definitely been flows to the smaller, you know, passive investors, you know, smaller caps. Like, um, just given the valuations, there, there has to be. I mean, the Russell 2000 troughed at 980 in March around, and it's over 2000 now. So we went, we got small caps got cut in half, and now have doubled. <laughs> so well, everything seems no, to stretch past where it was last year before oh, the, yeah, the crash. It's crazier now than it's ever been. Um, with everything going awesome. on, oh yeah, it it's could amazing. be going on. Yeah, well, we're you know the Nasdaq in 1999 was up 86 percent, and I was like, well, it can't. I mean, this is crazy. It can't get much worse than this. And then it proceeds to go up another 20, 30, you know, before it crashed. <laughs> so there's no reason uh, these markets can't go higher. But the large caps, you know, people often view um, stock market bubbles as as an actual bubble. You know, I, I like to think of it as a snowball, right? So at the beginning of the cycle, you got a sn- small snowball and you're rolling it up the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time you get you know, to the very steep part of the hill, the snowball is so big, it needs so much more force, so much more capital to push the snowball up the hill. You know, if you look at the Wilshire 5000 right now, the market cap's like $40 trillion. And then if you look at total tradable debt securities, it's like $60 trillion. Uh, so now you're about a hundred trillion dollar snowball, right? It sounds like a lot. And you've got the Fed buying 120 billion a month, and you're like, everyone thinks, oh, that's a huge number. That's going to save us. And you annualize that, and you know, it's like 1.4 and a half trillion. But that, that's tiny compared to the snowball. You know, the snowball is going to need a lot more if you're going to keep pushing this thing up because the higher prices get on debt and equities, uh, the bigger the snowball gets and the steeper the slope gets, and it's harder and harder to push it up. So everyone that has this belief that this Fed can always be there for us, always manipulate stock prices, always keep the asset inflation going, I think they're losing track of how big the snowball's gotten. (laughs) At some point, you go 100 trillion, 150 trillion, what is one in, you know, 1.4 trillion, you know? And even if they move it up to three, what's the balance sheet? Seven trillion? Were they going to make it 50 trillion? You know, I I don't think so. Let's hope not if you're full dollars. Uh, So at some point, the snowball, and every cycle has proven this, starts to roll back, you know? There's not enough capital to keep it up. And then it, it goes back and it, crushes everyone trying to push it up <laughs> and it goes all the way down the hill and now the snowball is small again and that's when jamie and i come in <laughs> and we have a small small snowball and we start pushing it back up the hill where we start to allocate our capital uh we, we watch we watch from a safe distance at the lodge while we're sipping our tea and watch a giant snowball that gets harder and harder to uh to, to get up the mountain so um 
The nice thing that happens though when the market does that is that many of the current larger cap stocks that probably don't fit into your investable universe might move back into your investable universe. Do you, do you keep an eye on things Absolutely. that are outside that might come back? Absolutely. So we'll follow a lot of mid cap stocks just for that reason. Uh, for, for them to come back to, to small caps. So, so definitely. Um, yeah, that, and that, at the end of the past two cycles we've been in, um, you know, that helped us a lot. Just keeping our, and we have a little bigger range, you know, 100 million to 10 billion. And part of that is to keep track of a lot of it. And even some that can go, go over 10 billion, you know, we're, we're keeping track of those to, to hope one day to, to own those again. What, what's, the, small cap what's the biggest you, you can buy inside the strategy? Uh, ten billion. Ten billion. Okay, so that's that's getting up into. I mean, what, what's your definition of small cap? Is it like two billion, a bit bigger than that? Um, well, hundred million to to ten billion. So you know, average is is for us now is probably I would say six to seven hundred million. We we've got quite a few that still are quite small, small. Yeah. That kind of skew the number down. Uh, we still like the small caps because they're not. Um, they haven't been really polluted as much with the uh, passive funds. So, so we still have several, you know, Crawford, I think is a great, great name, great idea, you know, kind of, but it's a 350 million market cap. So it's not for everyone. And, and uh, it has a little lower exposure in the benchmarks. And that's what we want. And we have another one, protective insurance. Um, God, what are they? They're like, they're, they're 200 or so million uh, trading at 0.6 times book value. So, so there's some, there's some interesting ones in, in financial uh, industries as well, uh, trading at very large discounts. But they're illiquid, and this one is closely held as well, so it's kind of a double whammy, <laughs> you know. So that's kind of it, uh, our biggest holding is docs. That's a little more liquid. That's that's quite a bit higher, um, but it's getting close to our valuation. So, so that the liquid ones are are getting tougher and tougher to hold, where the illiquid ones haven't really noticed the market's up. What do you think it takes to turn this cycle? Because in the last few days, as we're recording this, um, you know, pick your name for it, but there's been protesters or rioters or a coup attempt, depending on your particular side of politics. And the market was up pretty strongly. It's up again yeah. today. So the, clearly the market's not going to be, you know, a, a virus that's going to wipe out a lot of us. That didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, uh, a coup in the US doesn't seem to really matter. What's it going to take? An alien invasion? That might be bullish. Well, that's why I agreed to this podcast. Toby. I thought you were ready to let me know. I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> I'll tell you the date. That's the premium. That's the premium service. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, I tell you, you know, this Fed. I, I love it and hate it. I mean, I I hate it because it controls markets, it manipulates, you know, asset prices. It's trying to take over free markets. But I love it because they always fail in complete chaos and opportunity and volatility when they when it's over. So uh, it's tough to know what what causes this. Uh, if I had to guess, I would think it'd be the dollar. I mean, I just think you how can you create uh, literally trillions of dollars without effort or sacrifice and assume at some point that doesn't affect the value of the dollar? I mean, we had those PPP loans. Uh, the operating environment really for Q2, Q3 did better than I expected. And a lot of that was a stimulus. Well, that was $500 billion, you know, pretty much given out to companies. Uh, it was a free for all. And then you had $300 billion in uh, stimulus checks sent out. We just had another stimulus plan. Um, it, if you exclude that, you know, things would have been really bad. So 
So what's the plan here? To, to, how do we just keep sending out trillion dollar packages? And I'm actually in favor of this. I mean, the Fed is, has uh, helped the, the um, one percenters or, or, you know, inequality has expanded considerably, wealth inequality. And I believe, um, you know, if, if we're really gonna just benefit them, we, we should benefit everyone. And if you're gonna print money, send everyone a $20,000 check, every person in America. <laughs> You know, so that would be six or seven trillion dollars, which is about w what the current balance sheet is. So double the balance sheet, but let's make it fair. You know, it'd be distributed more equally. Yeah, send it out. I did a post called uh, "Monetizing Cat and Dogs," and the, the part of that post was, or the main, main thesis of that post was, why are we benefiting stockholders? The same amount of people in America own cats and dogs as they do stocks. Right? Why not send cat and dog holders, you know, fifty thousand dollar checks? You know, it's the same thing. You know, it's just we're 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 favoring one one group over another. I mean, we've had equity holders, bond holders benefit from QE for over a decade. Now it's time to turn the money hose on the people. And one of the reasons I like this idea, first, it's fair. You know, everyone gets a twenty thousand dollar check. But second, it will it will show how ridiculous this strategy is. Uh, for the Federal Reserve and it will immediately create inflation because you'll suddenly have seven trillion more dollars competing for the same goods and services in the economy. So the sooner that the Fed loses control, the better for free markets and capitalism. So I am rooting for the Fed to fail. Um, and I know it's gonna be painful, but we need we need them out. We need them out. I mean, this is not when you think about this is their plan. Like, this is the solution. I mean, do you ever just think about that? Like, printing money. I mean, are you serious? It <laughs> solves a lot of problems. We're, it we're seems. printing money. We are printing money to keep things going to pay our bills to, to fund these. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But, no, but it's like they got in a room and they're like, "Hey, I, I got an idea. You know, let's print seven trillion dollars." <laughs> well, let me play devil's advocate a little. Oh, bit. great idea, Johnson. You know. Um, but historically, this has always ended very badly, and this is what we're relying on and what investors have uh, definitely relied on to justify these prices. Well, let, let, let me play devil's advocate for a little bit. Um, we have sort of had this behavior of printing a lot of money. Um, so the Fed's been printing, the government's been sending out a lot of money as well. It hasn't really turned up in inflation. And anybody who points to any sort of alternative measure of inflation, like shadow stats or the Chatwood index or anything like that is kind of laughed out of the room. So if you're looking at CPI, uh, which is hedonically adjusted, and there are a lot of adjustments, measurements probably understating inflation, but who really knows by how much, it doesn't seem to have had any ill effects. So why not implement that sort of program where you're sending out money to everybody? Why not just yeah. keep on printing? Right. Well, and I think I think the secret is out now that uh, money printing isn't just for the rich. You know, now you see the stimulus checks and the PPP loans, which aren't loans. You don't have to pay them back. Uh, you know, they call them loans. I think it may, just sounds better that someone's going to pay you back. Most of them will not be paid back. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, but but when it does go go to the general population, uh, I think that's more fair. But then it will at least. That's when it will show how just ridiculous these policies are. And, you know, the past 10 years has gone to the, to the wealthy, and they've done extremely well. Uh, you know, I, I, we live in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. We live in a modest house, but on my ride to the office, 
it's uh, we I drive down Ponte Vedra Beach Boulevard, and there are very nice homes being torn down and being replaced with extremely nice homes. And uh, I didn't see that in the last cycle. So this is sort of the 1% cycle where you see this outrageous wealth uh, creation and it's being spent. So so maybe the guy you know working on the house that's being torn down is now making $20 an hour instead of 15, but it's nowhere near uh, the portfolio of the person owning the house, you know, whose who's who's net worth went from 20 million to 50 million. So uh, obviously there's a huge amount of inequality here. And I, I think now that people have figured out if I vote in the right people, they'll turn the hose on to me. You know, <laughs> I am good to get it now. And they are. So, right. So the last election in Georgia was people voting for a $600 check or a $2,000 check, you know, and what did they vote for? Uh, 2000. You know? So, so I think, I, again, the secret is out. And uh, I think they're going to have a hard time now maintaining the hose uh, just towards the rich. I think it's going to be spread into the economy. And again, when you throw that amount of money into people that are willing to spend it and they spend it. And one of the things we saw in Q2, Q3 was how well a lot of consumer businesses did. It wasn't like people received their checks and said, I'm going to save this for a rainy day. You know, they went to big lots, they went to Dick's, they went to Target and they spent their checks. Uh, and then they had comps that I've never seen before. You know, big lots had a 30% same store sales comp and then a 70% quarter after, 17% um, in, in Dick's as well. So, so these are comps I've never seen, but that was, I think, a good example of what happens when you just send checks out. You know, they, they go spend. Um, and that's inflationary. It will be. I mean, I went to Target recently to get a to TV. Our, our TV in the kids' room broke. And I got there and I said, you know, I just need a 50 inch, 55 inch. He's like, sorry, we're all sold out. You know, this is right after the checks were sent out. <laughs> I couldn't buy a TV. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, there's there's unlimited amount of money, but there's still a limited amount of production. I mean, you just toilet paper, right? It's a great example. Uh, it, it, there's only so much supply. Well, that was one of the things that, I thought would happen, and I talked about this a little bit on podcast. I thought that if you had this supply shock globally, which so there are still things that are missing even now, yes. we can't buy everything that we want to buy, right. and then you print a lot of money, that would seem to me that if you reduce the amount of goods that are out there and you increase the amount of money that's out there, the way that you rebalance that system is that prices go up. But I don't think we've seen that happen really. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of it, it doesn't always show up. I mean, but if you a lot of these companies calls we read, uh, their inventories are down quite a bit. You know, I, I know we have to talk about big lots. They talk about their inventory um, in transit, like they're including the inventory that's on the boats and coming to them because if you pull that out, it's an extremely low number. So the inventory for stores are down a lot. Um, and I think you're seeing too, uh, less promotions on the consumer businesses we follow. So, you know, I don't know how that shows up in the CPI data, but, you know, you, there's just not as many BOGOs out there as there used to be. So uh, I think it's showing up. I mean, we just bought our AC knocked out and uh, we bought a new AC and uh, it was quite a bit more expensive than it was when I, we bought our last one 10 years ago. So I think it's out there, uh, how it's calculated. And, uh, you know, we, we see it with the companies, you know, their, their costs uh, have risen. Uh, but, but with COVID, they did come down, you know, to be fair. They did come down. A lot of raw material costs, labor costs, advertising. But those are getting layered back on now. Uh, commodity costs are back up. Uh, people are spending again on advertising. The, the little quirk uh, is 
November, things started to slow again with the lockdowns. So we saw a really a pretty good bounce in Q2 and a sustainable bounce in Q3 of the companies we follow. Q4 is a little, uh, it's more uncertain because of the lockdowns again. So uh, so that could be a little pause. And uh, and then we had the vaccines, of course, that, that maybe Q1 improves at some point or Q2. Um, you know, we, we go back to normal, whatever that was. <laughs> you know, if normal's one to $2 trillion deficits and, and an all-time high stock market and 0% rates, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly normal, but apparently we're going back to that. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot going on right now in the, in the economy and the stocks we follow, and there's a lot of cross currents. Um, and this is what makes it very difficult for us, because Toby, you'll remember last, last podcast, we, we talked about our, our process a little more. And we normalize things, right? We try to avoid peak operating results and trough operating How results. How do you normalize norm this market? How do you normalize this market? <laughs> You're going to be plus or minus a lot, you know? So you got to do a lot of scenario analysis and uh, try to come up with normal. I mean, even tax rates now, what are tax rates going to be? Um, I mean, does the Biden administration know you can just put money and you don't have to raise taxes? Or maybe he just raises taxes out of spite. You know, I don't know. But in reality, you don't have to raise taxes. You don't have to cut spending. You could just print money. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see uh, whose advisors are and what they advise. And uh, I mean, you joke, but that's that 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 uh, policy prescription is out there. There's that's the MMT, uh, right? That's just sure. Don't sure. And, and for now, it looks like it works, right? So, Seems to. Yeah. Why not? So when I, I keep saying, let it rip. You know, the, the sooner we get up through this, just send everyone money and you know see what happens. The, I think the sooner that the you know the free markets and capitalism return. Is the problem that. While the U.S. is doing a lot of printing, the rest of the world is doing a lot of printing too. It's a race yes. between the PBOC, the BOJ, the uh, European Central Bank, the Australian Central Bank. Every bank in the world is is going yeah. hell for leather. And that, yeah, that I mean, just, in the old well, in the old days, a country like us, if we printed like we have, the currency would be destroyed. It's like they found this magic solution. If we all print together, hold hands and print together. It, we can't debase relatively, you know, at some point, this is not going to work. You know? It doesn't make any sense. And yet so here many, we are. So, many more, so much more currencies. I had a friend yesterday call me and ask me about Bitcoin. I, I, I don't know much about Bitcoin. You know, I, I, I see some, I'm concerned that, that there's just so many competing coins out there. I just, I don't see that limit on supply that a lot of people see. Um, right. But it's just, people are coming or are, are now aware Hey, this sounds too good to be true. You know, this, this guy's a pretty highly educated person, um, and he's figured it out. Hey, I need it. He says I need an inflation hedge uh, because he sees, you know, the, the money being distributed and being created without effort or sacrifice. So we we, we like gold and silver better. You know, Jamie and I do, um, but the Bitcoin might work as well. You know, we just don't have a strong opinion about it. But but I think there's more and more people thinking about what we're talking about is how can this continue indefinitely and you know why not have a hedge in case it, it it can't do you hold any precious metals in the fund yeah yeah our top uh, one of our top holdings is uh is uh silver so uh we used to own the miners we have one royalty company miner uh cisco royalties um but the bigger position is is our, our silver position and uh you know it was like at four silver was at 14 during the crisis or the pandemic and um I had owned a lot of miners in 15, 2015, and um, a lot of those had moved, you know, and, and so our thinking was, 
why have the mining risk? Because, you know, miners are <laughs> very volatile and, and a lot of things bad can happen and good. Uh, but we just felt more comfortable this time around just owning the, the actual metal. Uh, so, yeah, we'll... We'll, we'll probably just keep up, maintain a weight there as we, we kind of uh, get through this period. So I've got two questions for you. One is why silver rather than gold? Because silver, as everybody knows, is used in industry, so it tends to be a little bit more tied yeah. to the business cycle. And the second one is, are you doing it physically or are you doing it through an ETF? Uh, we own the Sprouts Physical uh, Gold Trust, or Silver Trust, excuse me. Um, and then, so that's sort of physical on that. You can actually get it if you want. Um, what was the first question, Toby? Just why why silver rather than than, oh, than oh, gold? Right, right, right. So yeah, so silver, you know, sort of the gold silver ratio we, it was near 100 when we bought it, uh, so that sort of made more sense to us. And one of the thing with miners that we really liked when we owned them, and again, we still own a royalty company, uh, was the leverage you you received. You know, so we could own say a five percent weight in, in the miner and silver uh, position we have, and and probably get a three times kicker on that. You know? So silver for us was sort of a three X gold. Uh, it's not precise, uh, but that's the same with the miners. So we're like, all right, let's get the same sort of uh, response, you know, with, with owning silver that we would in the miners. Cause I really like the idea of miners. If you believe gold and silver are gonna stay or increase from here, you know, a lot of miners make a lot of sense from cash flow. But that's not how we value the miners. We value them on replacement costs. How much would it cost to buy the land, build the mine, uh, you know, and have these developed reserves. And those, that's kind of valuation is a little stickier. It's harder to, to get a higher valuation with those uh, because those don't change as much as the cash flows of a miner when gold goes from, you know, 900 to, to, to 1,900. What's the significance of the gold-silver ratio being 100? Well, just historically, you know, it's been a lot lower and uh, there's a certain amount of gold in the ground and silver in the ground. I think it's actually like, the, the ratio is like 15, you know, right. so, so it's, it's, you're sure you get more bang for your buck. You know, it, it doesn't always revert back, but it, it's so extreme uh, when we, when we made that purchase, it, it just was one more variable to the, let, let us to buy silver over gold. Is that the, is that the leverage that you're talking about that you had, the ratio had got so stretched or what, where's the leverage? Well, yeah. Yeah. If the, if the leverage reverts and you get, you know, the gold kicker, say gold continue to increase, you would get both. So yes, yeah, it'd be, it'd be kind of a reversion theme. Um, but you know, at four, at 14, you know, cause in, in the cost to, to mine silver at 14, you're getting pretty close to that too. So that was, a that was another factor. But I remember that day when we bought silver, uh, Jamie and I, I walked through Jamie's office. I go, what do you think about silver? And I didn't finish saying silver. And he goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we were both on the same page and we, we, uh, we initiated a position. So the, the I'm still I'm still not entirely clear. Where does the where does the leverage come from? Is there leverage in the trust? Oh no 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 no. Just just relative to gold, silver is a volatile, much more volatile than gold. Oh, I see. Uh, I see. On just the upside the, and the outside. Yeah yeah. Just historically, it, it's you know I, I call it a three X. You know it might be two. It might you know, sometimes it might be four. It moves around, but it it has an interesting personality. You know silver. It's uh, it moves a lot more a lot more than than gold. Uh, much see. more volatile. And so, it's, so uh, it's the same with the miners that you get a little bit the operating leverage yes, in the miners exactly. is what creates the, they're That's, more we volatile. We're trying to replicate the miners right. with silver without the mining risk. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's um, ideal, right? You make the money without having to pull it out of the ground. That's that's the theme of the, yes. uh, the millennium. Oh, God. I, I owned the miners in 2015 and I um, 
Oh man, it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. And we bought another miner in uh, in March. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Alamos Gold, which I like a lot. It's just, it just it got over the replacement cost, so we sold it. Um, so we'll own them again. You know, it's just not, it's not, you know, it's it's a wild, it's not like owning the market leader of cat litter, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? or Scott's Miracle Grow. You know, the the, uh, the, the fluctuations are incredible. Um, and, you know, with commodities in general, I, I never wanted to be a commodity analyst, but, you know, really since 2014, um, the dollar spiked, commodities crashed, and uh, value stocks in general were expensive, or small caps in general. And that's where the value was. In 2015, the miners were very cheap, and I looked around saying, where's that, Where's all my value counterparts? You know, you, yeah. you can't own these things professionally. Uh, but I did, and I paid the price mentally. <laughs> you know, so, they eventually worked out. Uh, and then the same could be said for energy, uh, more recent, you know, in October, before they rallied with with the virus, uh, when the vi- not the virus, the um, uh, not the, the stimulus, not the virus, the stimulus, the vaccine news came out, yeah. uh, and then they did very very well. You know, we had some up fifty to seventy percent that we owned, um, but before that, you know, no one wanted to own them. You, you just couldn't own them, right? I mean, so so my favorite ideas always come from the question what sector or what stock would get you fired for owning? <laughs> and at 15, it was the miners, right? For sure. I mean, I can't tell you how many calls I took and had to explain the rationale for that. You know, I can't believe you own these things. And they were so inexpensive. And then energy in, in 2020 was, was the same way. You know, what, what was the percentage of energy in the S&P 500? It was, you know, like two and a half percent. So yeah, so, so there, it's interesting, you know, we complain a lot about valuations, but at least in this market, there's been certain periods where uh, certain sectors have been out of favor and you can do some work and you can stay engaged and find some value and, um, you know, make some money, you know, so it's not all bad, you know, but, but the, ones you, the ones that are interesting and you could buy, you've got to take a tremendous amount of career risk. So not everyone's willing to do that, right? But for, fortunately for us, we're small and we've got, you know, Jamie and then Frank Martin, you know, we're all on board with what we're doing. So we don't have to fight internally to buy energy. Actually, I may, I may have fought a little bit to buy energy. <laughs> I'd say, you know, it's a good idea. Um, but but overall, it, it's um, it's good. You know, we're, we're very supportive of, of, you know, of our ideas. We can do that. But for most people, if you bought energy earlier this year when it was extremely cheap, uh, you probably took a lot of heat internally, and that and that's really tough. That's really tough to do to, to keep your job. I think the difficulty with with energy has been that it has looked increasingly cheap over the last few years, and as right. anybody who's yeah. gone in and tried to buy it has been carted out. Yeah, I think my first post on energy was in November of nineteen, and and I wrote opportunities in energy, and then in March, you know, a lot of those names got cut. You know, were down significantly. Right. Nice post, Eric. You know, <laughs> but then we were able to buy a lot of those that we we've been following at even better prices, uh, and all of them were really good balance sheets. We own we own Pacing Systems. They do uh, they're a technology company for energy firms uh, for for rigs. They like you measure the depth, the uh, the torque, the pressure in the well, the well bore. Uh, so this is a really nice stock. Five dollars we bought for five dollars. Had two dollars in cash. Uh, a year later, it was a $20 stock, and uh, 
they make nothing to a dollar a share. So we normalize around 50 cents a share. So 10, 10 times normalized free cash flow, paying over 3% dividend. Uh, so that was wonderful. Uh, Helmer Campaign is another one, the market leader driller. They have a, a third of the market share. And Payson, by the way, had 65% market share. So wonderful established high quality energy companies, uh, you know, in, in HP's case was at 0.5 times a book. And normalized cash flow was like two two fifty a share. Buying it at fourteen dollars had a six percent dividend, and no one could buy it because why? Because the stocks were going down. Yeah. You know, you just can't buy stocks that go down. Um, uh, natural gas services is another one. So, so we have several of these significant discounts to tangible book normalized free cash flow, um, but they just were so hard to buy because they literally went down almost every day. I think that's one of the most interesting things that I've found in small and micro is that the yields are all kind of incredibly high given where everything else is. And then on top of that, the growth is pretty good too. So I've been sort of, you know, I I like small and micro and I've got some small and micro and I I, I kind of look at the portfolio and I think I can't see how this won't outperform because on every single measure, it's better than... It's better than the S&P 500. It's better than the, the indices. It's better every, on everything. Better than bonds, better than junk bonds. You have better yield in junk bonds now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, there's no question. Uh, some of the dividends we're receiving, you know, 2 3 4%. Um, I, I agree. And then and then you're going to eventually get the multiple, you know, I don't know, expansion, but, you know, normal, more of a normalized uh, multiple relative to other stocks, you know. So like, like Crawford, you know, 10 times free cash flow makes absolutely no sense if it's still growing 3 to 4% versus WD40, which is also growing at 3 to 4%. You know, but once it's 60 times earnings and once at 10%, how does that 60 times ever catch up from an earnings or free cash flow yield? You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so that coupon... That two, one two percent coupon again. I'm talking about this earlier, but it's so important. You know, put it on a spreadsheet. How does that free cash flow yield coupon catch up to a ten percent free cash flow yield? Either either the ten percent one has to collapse, but this is a, this business has been around since the '60s, so you know it's not going away. Uh, or the WD-40 is going to be in our toothpaste, our cereal, uh, <laughs> our ice cream. <laughs> it's going to have to some way grow 30, 40% a year to catch that coupon to catch up. I think to give WD-40, like it's a very well-managed company. And I think they got religion yeah, after Greenwald wrote, you know, Greenwald wrote the Buffett Beyond uh, Value Investing book. And he mentions it specifically in there. And I think that they might have diversified away from the core WD-40 business. And he said, if you just pulled it back to the core and then, you know, manage this like a, you know, you managed it for return on invested capital and you bought back stock and so on. And so they got that message and then they've started doing it and it's absolutely exploded, you know, over the decade yes. or so since he wrote it. And I agree. It's a great company. One we want to own. Yeah, the uh, high price. It's just not, not the current balance. And great balance sheet too, you know. And they, you know, they have expanded. They now have a WD-40 regular and they have a WD-40 <laughs> for bikes. You know, what the difference is. <laughs> they, they, got a whole, they got a whole product suite there. Yeah. <laughs> So, Eric, oh, uh, we're coming up on time. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in touch with you, how do they go about doing that? Uh, we can go to our website, you know, palmvalleycapital.com, and you know, our email addresses are on there. And feel free to to, to shoot us an email. Uh, I write a blog once a month, and Jamie writes our quarterly letters, and just uh, pretty good content on there. And check us out, rate us, and uh, if you like us, give us a call. Eric Cinnamon, fantastic chat as always. Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. Really enjoyed it.